0: Training peaks, Strava, ride with GPS, fastest bike split, live TV, streaming power data. Forget the power meter. If you want data, then in 2020, you've got it. The past 10 years have seen an explosion of data capture and sharing from athlete to coach, from UCI to WADA, and from teams to the public. The way we train, race, consume, and analyze cycling has been irreversibly changed by the proliferation of data. On today's episode, we take a look at how the world has changed with the sharing of data. G'day and welcome to another episode of Put Your Socks On, cycling's most data-driven podcast. My name is Angus Morton, and as always, I am joined by the guy whose DNA is written in binary, Bobby Jalik. <laughs> How are you, mate? <laughs>
1: Not bad, Gus. Not bad at all. Not bad at all. Yeah, we got a lot in this episode, a lot going on in the world of cycling. We got the World Cycling Championships in Berlin, the opening classic weekend, which was some great racing and a little bit of controversy that we'll get into later in the show. The coronavirus. You know, that, that was a big issue that wound up canceling one of the uh, the great races that was going on at the time, the UAE Tour. And uh, who knows, putting some of the other races on the calendar in doubt, perhaps.
0: Yeah, Bobby, it was a big week in cycling this week with, yeah, I mean, the coronavirus, it's, uh, it's sort of catching on around the world, literally. And it, it, it hit cycling pretty hard, which was frightening, you know, knowing people in that race. And knowing how that could potentially, you know, really disrupt the entire world of sport and, I mean, by extension, just the entire world. Let's look at first, speaking of that, the UAE Tour, the seven-day race. We covered uh, the first couple of days last week, but it was, up until the point, a really cracker of a race.
1: It really was. Adam Yates in stage three won in a very decisive and dominating performance on that uphill finish, the first one up to Jebel Hafit. He attacked very early and increased his way all the way to the line on one of the total ballers of the season so far. He attacked pretty early and increased his lead all the way to the line over Pogachar. And this guy's been winning races left, right, and center. And then Adam Yates just rolls in right off the offseason, first race, and throws down the hammer. That was pretty pretty awesome to see stage four as the sprinters got their day again, after those up in between those two uphill finishes, Dylan Gronewagon from Jumba Visma won in a, in the sprint and the last, t- which turned out to be the last stage of the race, Tajay Pogachar won the uphill finish. So he kind of got a little bit of revenge from Yates uh, on the third stage and won a very tactical little sprint there. So not only can this guy climb, but he has the tactical awareness to position himself at the right time. He may have been aided a little bit by one of the guys, Luchenko, uh, who may have decided that he had the race won and maybe started thinking about celebrating a little bit early. But yeah, it was a total bummer. It was a great race. It was getting really exciting. Obviously, the last couple stages were probably just going to be sprint finishes, but you know, those sprinters went all the way there for those finishes and that was taken away. But You know, they have to think about what was going on there. It looked like there was a little bit of a scare with perhaps two staff members being infected, and they just decided to lock the place down. And when I say lock it down, they were putting chains on the doors. Luckily for most of the people, that nightmare is over. But it does sound like there's a couple teams, like three or four teams that are still there. And let's just hope that that gets taken care of as quick as possible. But I don't really blame them for taking these precautions. And it just makes me a little bit nervous. You know, if this race was canceled, what's going to go on with the, the upcoming races?
0: Yeah, absolutely. This, uh, the coronavirus has, you know, really disrupted, I mean, the entire world, but, but this sport and it, you know, it sounds as though it's going to continue to. And as you said, it's important, um, the safety of the athletes. And just all the human beings uh, surrounding these events are taken into account. And so, yeah, I mean, like, I guess, you know, this is going to be the next, who knows, however many months, you know, it could be, they're saying up to 18 months before they find uh, uh, an antidote for it. So, yeah, we could be uh, in for what will be very odd and maybe truncated next 18 months of sport. But hopefully um, they can kind of get this under control and we will see racing continue and resume safely.
1: Yes, and the show goes on. Evidently, you know, we started with the the Umloop Het Newsblad, which is the opening kind of classic of the season. Very good race. They had all the weather conditions. Jesper Stoiven from Trek. There's Trek again, winning in another race, took the win in a two-up sprint against Eves Lampert from Decoinett Quick Step. Our American boys had a little bit of a tough race, but hopefully gained some experience for the future because I don't think they could have been baptized uh, in any more difficult conditions than they had there in that race.
0: We saw the uh, women hit newsblad as well. Annemiek van Vluten absolutely decimated the field over winning by 42 seconds, actually, which was huge, over Marta Bastagnelli. So, yeah, the women down there as well racing on the same day, and it was, uh, it was another cracker of a race.
1: Yeah, and for her to win that race in the world championship jersey, I noticed that she unzipped it. Man, that what, what a great way to start the season after being defending world champion.
0: Absolutely. And then on Sunday we had the Kern Brussels Kerner. And man, wasn't this a an epic performance? I don't know. Like it's yeah, it's one of those performances that will stick in my mind, I think, for a while.
1: Yeah, Casper Askreen, uh, one of our favorite riders from the old Tour California days, from a <laughs> Quickstep, made a solo attack and, man, just barely held on to it. But, you know, if it's by an inch or a mile, it doesn't matter. A win's a win. And congratulations to him on winning his first classic.
0: It was, man. Like watching him just stay at 30 seconds for 20 kilometers, just riding everyone that he, you know, everyone from the break as he was catching them, just riding them off his wheel was, was insane. But there was something, um, which I want to talk about. And you alluded to it at the beginning there, there was some, um, some controversy in this race as well. Gianni Moscon, he's been in the headlines both for his talent and also too, for his, I guess, controversial and, and well, downright, you know, disgusting, um, actions, but, he was DQ'd again from another race. This is, you know, his third or fourth race that he's been disqualified for. This time he was disqualified for throwing his bike uh, at another rider post-crash. Um, and I want to talk about this or highlight this incident um, because this is, you know, he's committed several violent acts during competitions that have seen him DQ'd, most notably the Tour de France in 2018. And in this most recent incident that his director said that Moscon needed support in order not to reoffend. And I feel like he's had that chance. I feel like he's received that report. And I don't think, you know, this is another long list. And I think that it's time for the sport to kind of draw a line in the sand to be like, do we need this guy in here? Um, I want to bring attention too to his racial abuse of Kevin Reza. This is back in 2017 at the Tour of Romandie. I don't think, again, like I don't think that the sport has really reacted strongly enough to this guy. You know, he yelled a bunch of racial epithets at Reza at the finish line. So in the public... He wasn't sanctioned by the UCI. It was handled internally by his team. Um, He returned to racing five weeks later and then, you know, went on to commit several more, like, sort of controversial, yeah, like I told you, disgraceful acts around that. I don't know that, like, uh, yeah, what I'm trying to say is that I I can't understand at a race of this level in public in this day and age why – like one, that this has happened, and then why he hasn't been like really heavily reprimanded. I feel that these actions far out far, do far more damage than a doping offense. And we see guys who have doped, fined for, or thrown out of the sport for, for much longer. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I find it's a very disturbing trait in present cycling, given he's a really good bike rider. And then we've seen, you know, he's done subsequent actions and there's lack of lasting discipline. It's clear that Team Ineos, it's clear that the UCI deem performance more important than well, then racism, right? But also the very fundamentals of sport. So I don't know, I want to see like, this is a, an example of sport acting to the detriment of society, um, which is, in my opinion, the opposite of what it's meant to do. It's sort of meant to make the world a better place. Nothing good has come from this. And without showing any real remorse. Um, and there's some quotes that he said, which are pretty easy to find, which demonstrate that. I feel like that it's time for the sport to to kick him out, to get rid of him. I don't think we need it. I don't think that there is um, a place for him in it. And I think that more of us need to stand up and kind of call him out for this action. But yeah, so I feel very, obviously feel very strongly about this, Bobby. So I just wanted to, to bring this up um, because I sort of haven't had the opportunity to talk about it in the last few years that he's kind of been doing this.
1: Yeah, let's just say he's pretty much run the gauntlet of offendable things that you can do in a bike race that we really haven't seen before. Yeah. Um, doesn't it doesn't look good for him. I, I'll be honest. You know, we're, we're watching from afar, but I wouldn't be surprised if his contract is soon terminated by Ineos. You know, they've definitely tried to help him. And um, it's something's something's not clicking there. Something's wrong. You think he would have learned that he's under the microscope. I mean, he's yeah. had multiple issues in the past and what he did i saw the video you, you never know obviously there's the adrenaline going through but when he decided to take off his number and throw it on the road and even rip it up i don't know if that yeah. was the best decision that he could have made at that point in time
0: and that's like and that's exactly it like throwing the bike you can to your point like you know the rage of racing and that sort of stuff and you're like there. Yeah. but but it's then it's all the things that he's done after you know talking about people being envious of him when he's talking about you know punching someone in the face or like people you know exactly that like tearing his numbers up when he, th- he threw his bike at someone like it's evidence of it so anyway um yeah. i feel like it, that's that's the thing for me that i'm like there's no place there's no place for you. it's like yeah i mean the fact that we're even talking about it is is, is such a shame because this is yeah this is negative let's yeah, turn that let, around though
1: let's let's definitely get yeah. into what we really want to talk about which is the rest of the really good racing going on
0: and there was a uh, ton
1: and the women had the umloop ben het Hagland, and um, that was won by Lorena Veibs from Holland in a, in a sprint, beating, and you pronounce her name because you pronounce it so beautifully. Um, um, the, Marta Bastanieli. Bastanieli. <laughs> <Bastanielli, laughs> yeah. Second for the second day in a row, and she is actually defending champion of that race. Then we also had the Ardèche Classic in France, mm-hmm. Remy Cavagna who i think everyone remembers from his famous breakaway and his less than stellar descending skills in the Tour of California <laughs> last year. Yep. Absolutely decimated the field, one solo. This guy's a motorcycle. quick Quickstep has so many weapons, it's it's scary.
0: <laughs> it really is scary. And then there's the new Bernard-Drome Classic in France where we saw Simon Clark and EF continuing their their fantastic start to the season.
1: Yeah, uh, here we go. Another team, another hot team winning races. Like right now, we're speaking about very few teams, but they're winning with different riders. And uh, he beat Warren Barguil in a two-up sprint to, to take the win. But the big thing of this week's show was the World Track Championship in Berlin. Multiple world records were smashed on this old-school track, which is at sea level, by the way. We had New World's Record, and I hope I'm not forgetting anything. I tried to do as much research as I could, but you have a new world's record in the men's team sprint, the men's individual pursuit, the men's team pursuit, the women's individual pursuit, and maybe there's a couple other ones like sea level world records as well. But what's going on here? You know, is the equipment that much better or are just the riders that much stronger?
0: I honestly have no idea. Like I know that the track works in four-year cycle so a lot of these programs because they're nationally and they're funded by the olympic games they tend to kind of like detrain or reset immediately after but i feel like i don't know yeah i feel like this is like staggering
1: i have very little experience on the track i love watching the track the team pursuit the individual pursuit that's two of my favorite events that that i watch on on the olympics or the world championship so i reached out to former olympian and professional road cyclist christian vanneveld about this because yeah you don't want to hear it coming from me so i i asked him those questions, like, what, what is it? Is it the riders? Is it the equipment? And he had some really interesting things to say. His his takeaways were, athletes are just different now. These riders are using huge gears, gearing that's 20 to 30% bigger than he was using when he was doing the team pursuit, although, yeah, that was a decade and a half, maybe two decades ago. The speeds are 10% faster. He actually admitted that he would have been nervous of even making the selection for the USA national team now compared to then, because these, these kids are just monsters. The old school coaches used to use small gears and very high RPM. It was very common to see them in the team pursuit doing 140 RPM, but now the, the gears are much bigger, thus the RPM much lower. And this wasn't, th- this trend kind of started happening a couple years ago and he thinks that the training is is starting to catch up to that technique of not using the small gears anymore. He also had a very good point, which only a guy with his sort of track experience would say. He said these days nowadays, riders seem to be guided into the events that they're most suited for. It makes sense, you know, the right guys for the right disciplines, which all, hasn't always been the case. You know, you had a guy that just because he had a track pedigree, you try to put him in as many events as possible. And, and now the specificity is there. These, these kids are just making amazing Yeah, progress. that's,
0: that's what blows me away. Or like, you know, certainly since I race track, like as a junior and whatever in the team's pursuit, like, like there's someone, you know, like a rider will be that trains, train specifically to start in the team's pursuit and like train specifically to do like, like laps X, Y, and Z. You know and in a certain order like so they're really trained to hone this like the time that they're going to be utilized on the track um which is super interesting because that makes total sense right like the guy who starts um the team's pursuit you know is is doing a different effort to the guy who's fourth wheel at the beginning um and then the guy who peels off after two kilometers or three kilometers is different you know doing a different effort to the guy who leads them across the finish line etc and so yeah, that makes, makes total sense. That like, and, and it seems to be that, that that's the case. All these riders are getting very, very individualized and specialized um, training programs to suit that event and their, and their role within that event.
1: Knowledge and understanding is power, and these guys are definitely, they, they know what they're doing. The other thing I asked him was about equipment. Obviously, equipment has changed a lot, and it's just getting better and better. The one thing, and he admitted, you know, it's been a, quite a while since he's been in the sport, but we all talk and have relationships with these guys. And the one piece of equipment, I said, if there's one piece of equipment that's changed that's made the biggest difference, what do you think it is? And he said, a skin suit. And I, I agree really? with him. I mean, there's a lot of innovations going on with the wheels, with the aerodynamics, but like the skin suit, the studies that we did back in the day with, with skin suits, and you know, I've got a skin suit that I, I used as a pro, even the one that I used in the Olympics. Yeah, I wouldn't be caught dead in that thing these days. <laughs> I mean, you're basically giving away 15 seconds in a, in a long time trial just by, by wearing this compared to the stuff that they have now. So, man, the, the riders are different. The equipment is getting better. And, man, the results and the world, the world records are falling. And it's just a question of when are they going to hit those, those, those milestones? And we saw quite a few world records fail. But let's start with Team USA's results. yeah. Fantastic showing by the women. It started off with Jennifer Valente getting silver behind Kristen Wilde in the women's scratch race. The women's team pursuit, winning gold in front of Great Britain and Australia. Huge ride. Jennifer Valente gets another silver medal behind Eleanor Barker from Great Britain in the women's points race. But I think the story was Chloe Dygart two world she broke a world record twice in one day and now it's set at 316.937 and she said she was bummed not to go faster and her ultimate goal is a 310 a
0: 310 she was going
1: 55k an hour and she wants to go 56 and a half it's it's unbelievable but that is unbelievable She is an amazing athlete, and she obviously helped her team win, and congratulations again to the entire team for the women's team pursuit. But the real bummer about this whole story is that this is not an Olympic event. Yeah. The the women's individual pursuit is not an Olympic event in 2020.
0: That is a real shame. Other notable events, the Netherlands set award record uh, in the men's team sprint, Um, Denmark, a new men's world record in the team's pursuit this is sickeningly fast 346.5 um i remember when they first went under four minutes and that was frightening Uh, that was the
1: qualifying round and then they beat it again oh again 344 i I didn't see that that is
0: what
1: (laughs) every round they did they went faster and faster 344.672
0: I totally misread that. You're right. Yeah, that is unbelievable. Um, it and, didn't seem and
1: like that long ago that the four minute was like the, the barrier, and now it's just well, tumbling.
0: And that's exactly it. And Filippo Garner, in, in the men's individual pursuit, won over American Ashton Lambie uh, in a time of 401.9. He thinks he can go under four minutes. That's insane. I wouldn't put it by him. I mean,
1: I believe that this kid is going to be the next Bradley Wiggins or Garrett Thomas. He's only 23 years old, six yeah. foot five, huge, and 168 pounds, and he's on Team Ineos. You can't tell me that after the Olympics that he's not going to have that template to work from that Bradley Wiggins and Garrett Thomas had, and thus won the Tour de France. I don't know. I, I, this kid could be the me- next Miguel Indurain. It's going to be pretty funny seeing a six yeah. foot five guy climbing with the likes of. Of uh, Sergio Higuita uh, <laughs> yeah. in, in a couple years time, but it definitely could happen. But yeah, Ashton Lambie, man, tell me about this guy. His the mustache, that the helmet, his story. <laughs> this I mean, guy what is... what an amazing cool kid.
0: Yeah, this guy's a real unique story in in the cycling world. Like he came from a background in in ultra racing, but like wasn't really. Like didn't come from a background of, of cycling he was kind of just doing these epic rides by himself and then got on the track and and was like you know incredibly strong. He was one of the guys who really kicked off this recent sort of spout of over the last um, eighteen months of world records falling. Um, he broke uh, the world record that was set by Jack Bobridge, which wasn't which which had stood for I think like six or seven years. And that record was broke Graham Boardman's record, which was set like in the 90s. So the record in the in the individual pursuit hasn't really been broken much in the last 20 years. And Ashton Lambie then kicked it off and, and they've sort of broken it multiple times, just really in recent times. But he was one of those guys, I saw his his stash and we were talking uh, back at the Tour de France about aerodynamics. Um, and I asked about like, does, a, does facial hair make a difference? And Apparently, not really, which is, I guess, why he has it. But yeah, he's a really, he's a, he's a real legend and a really interesting guy. And he's actually no longer going to the Olympic Games. And so uh, he'll be racing a bunch of gravel races and doing a bunch of um, ultra stuff this year as well. So he's going to be, yeah, it's going to be cool to kind of follow his story because, you know, like you're going from the ultra technical um, and ultra precise world of, of team's pursuit and individual pursuit onto what is pretty loose and pretty kind of out there being the gravel and ultra scene. So it's going to be great to see that.
1: And talking about gravel, we did have the Grasshopper Series this week and Peter Stetna won the men's event in Super Sweet Water Mm -hmm. and Kristen Faulkner won the women's event. So a lot of racing going on in all sorts of disciplines and bring it on, keep it
0: coming. Exactly. And on that note, uh, speaking about the track and, and you know, all of the, the falling records, coming certainly will certainly to the uh, in part to the ability to collect data. And for today's feature, we're looking at how the cycling world has changed with the proliferation of data. Like much of modern society, data has become synonymous with performance cycling, so much so that for a cyclist with performance aspirations, to not utilize power, one or more of a dozen associated analytical software programs on a daily basis, it's practically unheard of. And if you want to be competitive, arguably impossible. The first power meters started appearing in the mid 80s from brands like SRM, look, they were big, prohibitively expensive, only used kind of experimentally by some professional athletes and some national teams. Uh, and they sort of provided data that Was pretty inconsistent and no one really knew how to analyze. Fast forward 35 years and forget just recording and analyzing power. The public now has access to the location, route, duration, power, output, weight, cadence, heart rate, wind direction, temperature, (laughs) elevation, and like even more metrics of an increasing number of athletes. Like from everyone in the world tour to the 65-year-old next door neighbor who thinks it's still fine to wear the Motorola shorts that he bought off eBay back in 1999. So access, yeah, access to data has like completely changed or the world of cycling. It's opened up a totally new aspect to the sport um, from the way we train uh, to the way that we get to follow and mimic and, and look at how our heroes train to the ability for armchair heroes to other teams their ability to predict how athletes are going to perform within seconds, and from that, you know, I want to know how is this impacting sport. So it would seem that the increase in in like the, the capture, analysis, and sharing of, of data through apps like Strava and Training Peaks, uh, and the like that it's you know that the cycling world loves its data, right? These this area of the sport is is growing and and kind of exploding uh, amongst the amateur use, you know, amongst professional and and just the general consumer. Yet. Uh, and I was, I was reading earlier today in the, 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 the UCI road survey that they conducted last year at the Tour de France conducted by the UCI, the top two answers in the question uh, that said what reduces road racing appeal, both the top two answers directly pertain to the capture and dissemination of data during a race. So... How this is impacting cycling is is definitely more complex than it would ne- it would necessarily seem. Bobby, I want to hear as someone who's an early adopter of technology, someone who's really had a huge impact on directing where the sport goes through adding technology. I wanted to hear like what the progression of of integration of technology looks like, and then, yeah, sort of your experience with with uh, driving it.
1: Yeah, I bought my first direct force power meter which was an SRM in 1999. And I'll admit, I had next to no clue of what it was. It was very much a status symbol. It gave you fancy data, but didn't really know what that meant. I made sure that it was calibrated every day. I downloaded all my files into the old SRM evaluation software program, which this specific program recorded the files as individual files. So I'd go in there You know, mark up my my little intervals that I did. Look at the numbers, but didn't realize what I was really looking at. It it, and it and it took some time, but once that file was there, you rarely went back and looked at it again. So at least I was looking at it and aware and kind of learning the consistency of the intervals. Uh, You know, very very low (laughs) understanding of what I was actually doing. Then I would. When I when I had a coach, I'd send the files to the coach, which was difficult. And to this day, I wonder if they even looked at them. Because <laughs> if they have all these kids sending, you know, email attachments with single SRM files on them, uh, are they looking at every single one? Uh, but, you know, that's probably another story. But, yeah, direct force power meters became a must for any rider striving to be better. From the top down to the bottom, if you didn't have a direct force power meter, you were just kind of flipping coins. But now I realize that we had very little I- idea of, of how to use them. Sure, we'd go out and do tests that would estimate our quote, you know, M- FTP, threshold value, you know, whatever you want to call that. And we would do intervals based off that information. But I do believe we we're often overestimating our abilities Hmm. which could have led to overtraining and burnout, which a lot of us guys, early adapters had. I think a lot of us look back at our careers and say that we're chronically overtrained. But the other thing, the other mistake that we made is that we thought that the FTP threshold or whatever you want to call it, is uh, we thought of it as a constant, but now we know that it it is in fact not a constant, that it does go up and down based on the training that you're doing. So my outlook has changed over the years about tracking and numbers, of course, they're important if the data stream is clean and consistent, but as a wise coach recently said, tracking isn't training. And that's one thing we have to remember is, you know, going out and doing the training and doing all this data tracking, they're they're two totally separate things. there's so much that goes on to how these powers are produced these days. And most importantly, are they repeatable and repeatable at the right time in the races? I definitely don't want to go too far into the weeds on this today, but just let me say that sensation, the sensations that you have that go along with these numbers are just as important. And we don't win races with those numbers. Many other factors such as yeah. Recovery protocol Sleep hygiene, confidence, tactics, that mental mindset are are just as important. Today we have Dirk Friel from the the co-founder and chief evangelist of Training Peaks to kind of go through this a little bit with us. Before I introduce Dirk, I wanna give a little bit of a backstory. Do you mind, Gus? Don't can I get no,
0: let's I I this is yeah, I want to hear this because I've heard from several other those who shall not be named ex-Team Skyriders. I've heard the how this changed the way things were done, training peaks. So I want to hear this story because um, I'm interested to know how the how the I mean how I came to be using training peaks, which I guess is your fault, Bobby. <laughs> no no, no not, not I just want to tell you a little bit of backstory about,
1: about Dirk as well. So as I was leaving the two thousand and eight Las Vegas bike show. I um, heard a guy who was down on the ground eating a sandwich and he yelled, Hey, Bobby. And that person was Dirk, a guy that I've known since I was 14 years old racing in Colorado. And after a brief conversation, he told me about something called training peaks and handed me his card. And I had just taken the role of rider development manager for my old team CSE, which was now becoming team Saxo bank. And, um, you know, when you're at those those bike shows, you get a bunch of people, you have a bunch of cards. And I went through the cards when I got home, and I decided to give Dirk uh, a call. After him explaining the software platform to me, I knew right away it was a game changer. And long story short, wound up bringing him with me to one of our training camps uh, with, with CSC Soxo Bank. And I remember saying at the end of our conversation was, Damn it, Dirk. This <laughs> would have been so... Great to know before I retired, but evaluation software like Training Peaks allowed coaches to prescribe and analyze training from anywhere in the world with an internet connection and has really changed the game of how we use those little numbers on the head unit to help guide riders' progress. Dirk, welcome to Put Your Socks On. How you doing, man? Hey, doing great. Thanks,
2: Bobby, Gus. Thanks for uh,
1: having me on. So yeah, let's just dive right into it, Dirk. How has Training Peaks and the use of Training Peaks changed over the years regarding the acceptance of teams recording and then sharing their
2: data? Oh man, uh, it's it's black and white. I mean, I can remember, you know, in the year two thousand one, two thousand two, that time frame, thinking, why are all these triathletes using Training Peaks, but none of these pro cyclists are? You know, and somehow it was taboo, like we were big brother or something. And I couldn't understand why these teams weren't just managing their data better or even wanting to collect it or manage it in the first place. And so it really has been a story of old school versus new school. You know, back then an, an SRM was literally like a status symbol you know, you made it if you had an SRM on your bike, but you didn't know what the hell it was. And the coaches wanted access to it, but you you could care less, right? Um, at least you trained with it. You know, riders were emailing maybe files and oftentimes the, the coaches of the teams wouldn't even get data until the rider showed up to the next race and they downloaded, you know, the SRM um, right there on the spot. So, It's changed a lot back then teams really weren't responsible. Once the rider left the race and went home, the riders were on their own and that's completely changed now. And it's now mandated by the UCI that there's an athlete management system. And so we were along for the ride. Yeah. It's been a wild, wild and crazy times, but yeah, it's been great.
0: Dirk, like having seen the progression and like the acceptance of data collection and sharing where's it go now like what's the next step and to you, your point about the triathletes like who's sort of leading leading the charge in in the athletic world or in the athlete world
2: i think triathlon and cycling do kind of lead the world now certainly triathletes adopted it first primarily because of the trend of coaching triathletes are about five times more likely to hire a coach than a cyclist so you know triathletes tend to Start using some system between themselves and the coach. Cyclists were slower to adopt actual personal coaching, but now you know they definitely lead the way. You know, there's many sports that are still decades behind triathlon and cycling in terms of not only just collecting data, but having more of a scientific approach to to training in general. So certainly, we're we're on the forefront. You know, and cycling has really led the way with. You know, every rider now pretty much can, you know, uploads and shares their data right after they train or race. And, you know, a decade ago, that was just somehow a big no no. But somehow in a decade, it's completely flip flopped. And now it's just, oh yeah, share, you know, share your training data. And if you don't share your training or race files, that's okay. There's nothing really per se wrong with that. Um, I think there's two different issues we're talking about here. One is publicly sharing. And the other kind of issue I'm bringing up is, Just data management between coach, athlete, team. Um, So there's two separate things going on there.
0: And where is it going? Like, do you think like what's the next kind of breakthrough with with data collection or sharing or management? Like, where do you see the gains to be made now with with this system that you guys are sort of developing and and working with?
2: Well, I think at this point it's pretty. Easy. It's so seamless, you know, Bluetooth from your head unit to your phone to the cloud. It might go to Garmin, then it goes to Strava training peaks, you know, you can go to eight different servers, you know, in the course of two seconds. Um, that can maybe get streamlined, maybe a little bit more, but we're pretty much there on that stuff. I think really the future comes down to what do you do with the data? It's more about can we make the coach and athlete smarter, better in terms of decision making in the moment? And It not always about maybe how many more intervals to do but a lot of it has to do with the sequencing of workouts themselves there's no secret workout I mean so many of the pros are recycling the very same workouts right it really comes down to sequencing of you know the intensity the volume the frequency the rest you know that's the secret in in how, how do you follow up today what do you do tomorrow I feel there's a lot that can be mined within the data at the individual level, um, and that's where we're going to see great strides in the next, you know, decades to come. And with data being shared with the public, either
1: on live TV, via Strava, any of these other outlets, do you have any concerns with the sharing of the data with the public?
2: I mean, I personally never have. Uh, Training Peaks, you know, never has had concerns with that. We we've been the ones. That had to try and pioneer getting teams and getting riders to share data. Um, certainly, Strava really opened that up. You know, that's their their main game, right? It, it really isn't our value proposition in terms of you know we aren't social. You know, Training Peaks is not the social platform. We're we're more honed in on the coach athlete relationship. But beyond that, we have we want to have insight into the data for the general public to see, for the fan to follow when the race wraps up, you know, can can they dig in and see, you know, how hard was that? Could I even do that for five minutes? So no, we've never had a problem with um, the sharing of the data. But there's there's nothing wrong if, if, if you don't. But it was always, a, there was a big uphill struggle to try and get teams to open up in the first place. And now, you know, those floodgates are, are now wide open.
0: And with those, the opening of those floodgates, right? Like, is there you know sort of anecdotally i've certainly noticed it but what has been the impact with the explosion of data like we have seen crazy times set on climbs in a sport that's cleaner than it's ever been or you know essentially it is like what yeah is there a measurable like is there a measurable different distance difference or like have you guys seen like like a a a change since that proliferation of data
2: no i mean i i hopefully it's the through the transparency of the training, et cetera, it's become cleaner that's hopefully number one uh, I do that I do believe that's that's the case. I feel there's more fan engagement now that's certainly certainly the case. I think one of the biggest areas that we've seen change and we have yet to even um, leverage it even more is in talent i d you know we have Quinn Simmons and remco evanpool and I mean you know, big congrats to Chloe for setting like two world records, you know, yesterday, but really finding the talent early and then shaping that talent. When you see that talent, how can you maybe cut some corners, you know, in a smart way and the coach can see it, identify it. They're a smarter coach because they've got so much data behind them. They, they've seen it before and they can maybe make the most of the training. So will we see more younger world tour riders, you know, that maybe we're just starting to see that and maybe that's because of this education that the coaches have had and we can start to make training more effective and efficient in an earlier stage. That could be detrimental, you know, if we're turning an athlete pro really early, but if you can squeeze a bunch out of them and get a lot of world tour victories in the first five years, you know, that's really, really worthwhile. Um, so that that might be one trend we're seeing now, you know, of, of being in a spot and develop talent earlier.
1: And what do you have to say about the armchair data analysis? You know, a lot of these numbers are being shared, people are going in with their calculators and extrapolating what they want out of a file. And it's kind of getting people to understand watts per kilo and and whatever. But what do you have to say about the accuracy, I guess, of those people that do not have the file, but then extrapolate that
2: from a certain Strava segment. Yeah, I mean, math, eh, you know, and modeling can get pretty darn accurate. It's amazing what what numbers can tell, but it isn't always the whole story. You don't, you know, you you certainly within the numbers have to have an element of the weather involved, not just absolute temperature, barometer, etc., but you know, the wind direction. You know, and on, on a climb, wind is coming in every direction, it could be a tailwind for a lot of it, you know so there's there's a whole lot more within there, but you know people can get pretty darn accurate, and that's why I always thought this this secret isn't in the race files. the The secret really is in the training, you know, in the sequencing of the training. So why not open up and share all the race data? I think if it becomes more like NASCAR, that's a good thing. I think you should even pay a rider more if they share data. It's all about eyeballs. It's sponsorship. That's what drives the sport. If someone doesn't want to share their data, that's totally fine. You know, it, um, they own it. Within Peaks world, the team doesn't own the data. It's the rider that owns the data. The data travels with them from team to team and coach to coach. But, you know, the fans want to see the data. Um, and then there's less of that armchair. You know, maybe the team could actually provide more outside of the race data files. You know, what? what tires were they using, et cetera. You know, that's more NASCAR, you know, people want to know that stuff and that helps the sponsor too, right? So yeah, I'm just all for, you know, having it open and transparent, less guesswork
0: and we're all here to have fun and, uh, you know, get excited. Well, Dirk, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, It was fantastic to chat. And I'm sure we're going to have you on again uh, as we see uh, more and more records break coming into the Olympic Games, et cetera, <laughs> this year. I think we're going to be in for a bit of a scorcher of a year in terms of PRs and yeah. world records and whatever else.
2: Let's get some more Quinn Simmons going from the U.S. <laughs>
0: <laughs> or Ozzy, yeah. you know. And Chloe yeah.
2: Digards as well. Chloe, yeah. Yeah, yeah that,
0: was, that was awesome. Awesome. Thanks, man. Yeah, Thanks, Dirk. See ya, Bobby... Uh, after speaking with Dirk, I'm yeah, and and you know, like what he was talking about um, with how riders right, analyze, etc. This this uh, the data that comes out, and leading to that conversation that we've had once before during the Tour de France, but about banning power meters. What are your thoughts, as you know, as a coach and also as a fan, as a lover of the sport? do we have too much data nowadays do you think that's the problem i kind of want to hear yeah i want to hear your your thoughts on that
1: yeah uh i I think it's a touchy topic and i don't want to speak for the current generation of riders but my experience as a rider was that even though i often had a power meter on my race bike i didn't really look at it when i was racing to be honest it didn't really matter what those little numbers were showing if you have to react in a in a race, you have to react. You know, you don't look down and say, "Oh, I can't react right now because he he this guy's going ten watts over what I should be going." Mm. Um, I did, however, find it interesting to look after it after the race, like the analytical part, to see, you know, if I was good, how good was I when I got dropped? What happened? You know, those sort of things. And but the detail, the detail, obviously now being on the other side of the barriers, the detail that I look into those things is a lot more than I did when I was a rider. And I think the power meters kind of get get a bad rap and racing with a power meter gets a bad rap just because a very well-known rider's style is to lower his head when going hard. And I don't think that actually means that he's looking at at, at his numbers the whole time. I think it's been a little bit overblown, in my opinion, to be honest. But I do believe that the power meter is a must for training. Since these days, these workouts have to be so structured and specificity, specificity, specificity is is the key. I hope that moving forward, that real-time data streamed to the audience becomes standard, because I think that's one way to create intrigue. And Dirk said, you know, eyeballs, and eyeballs bring sponsorship and interest, And, and I totally, totally agree with him there, because... We need these people to understand what we're talking about, and that's going to increase the interest in the participation in the sport. Exactly. Uh, This does have to be done the right way in order to do this, but people watch sports that they understand. That's bottom line. Um, My wife wife won't watch American football because she just doesn't understand it, but it's my favorite game on network TV to watch. So um, although it sounds good, and going back to banning power meters, I don't think that power meters should be banned. I, I believe it's the rider's instincts, their tactics, their technical ability that wins the races, not the power meter. So
0: there you have it. That's an interesting point because I, like, I think that, yeah, let's do away with all of that. But that's what my heart tells me because it would be great to go back to these kind of mythical rides where no one really knew why they were good, but they just felt good that day. But the reality of that is that that's definitely not the case. One thing that Dirk said that was really interesting, and I think that this is an argument that the UCA should really and that the team should be getting that live, allowing that live data to come out, is people are getting, people are getting bored. They're saying cycling's predictable, and they're saying that if we get rid of the training, the training, the power meters in races, that will change that. And as you just said, it won't because, like, you can't predict how a race is really going to go. And so looking at your power meter is going to do nothing for you in a race. And you're training with it. Like, that's where these riders are becoming so evenly matched. Um, Dirk spoke about NASCAR. NASCAR, for me, when I looked at it, I was like, why would anyone. Watch that as an Australian I've got no interest in it but all of a sudden as you start understanding the data and these these drivers are within a thousandth of a second of each other and you're like what in the you know what on earth is going on but as soon as you start getting into the data and the way that they share all that information all of a sudden a whole new story opens up like it's the same with with baseball and 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 American football to your point and as someone who hasn't grown up with sports with sport that is like as technical as that in in the way it's broadcast and being indoctrinated to that in my 20s maybe that's the way that cycling needs to go and in order to like re-engage everybody's opinion so I've sort of come full circle on my thinking of 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 how data should be shared and 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 Dirk's reference to NASCAR just just in that interview before has actually kind of linked the circle for me.
1: Using that that NASCAR reference you know Mm. I remember seeing this, this advertisement that said, power without control is nothing. And yeah. even if we do have, we talked about this on the last episode with, with, data, with, with race coverage, even if we do have that open mic, we need to make sure as a sport that people understand what we're talking about. And the verbiage that we use sometimes, especially over the radio, You know, we, we need to educate these people. And how do you do that? You get kids on bicycles. When Mm -hmm. kids want to go on bicycle rides or to bicycle races, who has to take them? Their parents. Then their parents get more engaged because they're trying to help their kid get better. And then that grows the knowledge of the sport. And I don't believe that having a person talk in very complicated terms is going to help the general public and help the progression of, of cycling. But I do think that it is super interesting to the people that understand the sport. And like I said, hopefully we'll get more and more of those people and more eyeballs on the sport, more knowledge mm. of the sport, more kids doing the sport. And, you know, then we're good. But what he said about NASCAR, NASCAR is suffering right now. So we don't maybe want to learn. We yeah. may want to learn from that um, sharing of data and then maybe as we're sharing the data, we make sure that it's accurate and we actually explain it in, in very good terms. So good point. Um, a, a lot to, that, to digest
0: there. One more thing, Bobby, uh, before we wrap up, um, Dirk said that one brilliant thing about collecting data and then being able to analyze it through a program like his, his program, Training Peaks, is that it can help coaches and teams find and exploit talent earlier. Two sort of things here. Like, is that kind of is that an explanation for why we're seeing Pogachar, uh, Ivana you know these really young Simmons, like these really young athletes doing really well? Um, and then, by extension of that, is do you think that's a good thing? Um, like, for me, I hear exploit young kids like their talent earlier, and that concerns me.
1: You have a good point and a good reason to be concerned, but teams have been doing this for years. Gotcha. You know, even even if they, you know, scout out a kid and he doesn't have a power meter, what's the first thing they do? They have yeah. him come and do a test either in a laboratory or with a bike that has a power meter. So that's that's nothing new. But we are absolutely, for the first time in a very, very long time, seeing multiple kids just walk into the world tour and kick down the door. Mm. So I do believe there's a certain part of talent ID and obviously the, the coaches in the management have to make those decisions on the health of these young riders and the longevity of their careers. But ultimately I don't think any 19 year old kid, I mean, we see this in all sorts of sports, kids going straight from high school into the pro ranks yeah. is they want the best competition. And I think by getting these numbers and following their training in on platforms such as Dirk's, is going to allow coaches to make better decisions to increase the longevity of those riders. I think in the past, when we did have a superstar young kid and we were only using heart rate, mistakes were made. And here you can see fatigue, you can see sickness, you can see so many things, and there's so many other data streams out there that we don't want to get into this time to to help with that, that I don't think it's ever been better of a time for these young riders to come into the sport because they have so many advantages. And these coaches, can they're not only thinking of the almighty victory the next weekend, they are thinking three years down the road, four years, five years, 10 years. So if power meters are gonna do that and evaluation software is gonna do that, I think we are gonna see younger and younger
0: riders and riders having longer and longer careers. And with that, that's the show, put your socks on. Uh, A massive thank you to Dirk Friel, the chief evangelist at Training Peaks, uh, and to everyone else who has listened along. You guys uh, have made the show and you continue to support us, and that's fantastic. We're very, very excited to have you listening and also keep sending stuff in. It's been really, really good to hear from everybody. And, and, uh, yeah, so keep that coming. You can listen to us on the podcast like you're doing now from velonews.com, where all the best cycling journalism is. Uh, You can also get us on Spotify now and apple podcasts get at us on the social media we have a twitter page called at physopod p-y-s-o-p-o-d um so probably shoot the questions there uh, and we'll try and respond otherwise you can get to me on instagram at that is gus or bobby at bobby zhulik yeah thank you guys so much um share the show if you like it give us a rating and uh until next week
1: and in closing I would just like to say data, let your coaches deal with the data. Young kids go out there, ride your bike, have fun, feel good. And you can look at the data after the races, but thanks everyone for listening. And as always, don't forget to put your socks on.